Hello. Hello and welcome to the Betsy, Betsy Boss, Boss Podcast. Podcast. Welcome back. We are almost through our recording here on Friday the 13th yes. of August. <laughs> Which means that we have almost officially survived Friday the 13th. Knock on wood. Yeah. Uh, we're very, very superstitious. May- well, maybe a little stitious. <laughs> we're not superstitious. Yeah, but anyway, we're out here and there's some fresh tea to spill Ooh. on the Britney Spears case. I and am so excited to get into whew, this. Y'all knew that we had to follow up with Britney because yes. she also ties in weirdly with our oh, topic so for the day. Oh, so creepily on point. So on point. She's got so much in common with today's topic but in any event let's get into it yes let's start with Britney yes so it was confirmed that Britney Spears's dad might be on his way out as her crazy servitor and obviously he's been in here he's been controversial Britney's been trying to have him ousted for the longest time and what's a little bit weird, though, is that he hasn't officially stepped down yet. Yeah. At yeah, least according to most headlines. It's a lot of news and excitement, but that's the thing. It it just seemed like it was a lot of like, oh, my God, this is happening. But then it was kind of like, oh, wait, like, it's just kind of an offer that's out there. Or yeah, yeah. That's going on. So it says something like. The fact that Jamie's filing actually argued that he shouldn't be suspended or removed. Mm. And it's also noted in here that he is willing to step down when the time is right. Okay. But the transition needs to be orderly and include a resolution of matters pending before the court. Now, that to me says, I'm ready to step down, but only yeah. once certain things happen mm-hmm. and he's in a position to pull a lot of different strings because he's been the head of this the head of this estate the head of this conservatorship for 13 years I now know, it's crazy 13 years on friday the 13th Ooh, 13 years 13 years yes. she got one of your kids got you for 13 years yeah so he's been in charge of this for a long time yeah and basically it's been confirmed with his legal team that he isn't technically making the full step aside at this time he's not stepping down unless the court approves payment of the attorney's I was fees i gonna say it's gotta do something like money has to be involved money's always involved with jamie spears he's all about the money <laughs> and he is looking for 1.2 million dollars <laughs> and Jeez. his compensation and basically it sounds like he's conditioned his exit on the court approving these payments wow and approving other things that britney previously objected to oh my god so while it's a great piece of news it's really exciting i think we're we're obviously on the precipice we're moving of some exciting somewhere things. Yeah, yeah something's happening here and he's probably on his way out yeah he's just probably going to make it a little bit more difficult oh, than yeah. a quick and easy switcheroony of the conservator well and i i almost have to say like obviously britney can probably afford this like blah 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 but just with the community that has been behind this whole free britney movement i wouldn't even be surprised if like some GoFundMe popped up or just like anything to kind of like, all right, close it out, get him out of here, mm-hmm. do whatever you need to do and just move on, like remove him. Yeah. Well, and to that effect, it's interesting because the filing actually says something like there's no urgent circumstance mm. that justifies Mr. Spears's immediate suspension. So 
basically it's the opposite of what Britney's been arguing, being arguing this whole time and what her whole camp has been arguing, which is that every single day matters. Yeah. Every day that he's in charge of her estate, he's, you know, he's winning, she's losing, he's reaping some kind of benefit out of owning a part of her. Right. And it also is really important that we get a timetable for him to actually step down yeah, here. Yeah, get a because date. Get a date on the calendar because as we know, these things get pushed mm-hmm. and the more they get pushed, the less likely it is that something will actually happen. Yeah, yeah. So a little bit of hope, but not a timetable. It's good. Yeah, it's time. good. Like it's definitely the, the most that has been moving in the past, like you said, 13 years, but still it's like, ooh, we're close, but it's nobody's going to be able to breathe that sigh of relief until it's finally over exactly but we'll be sure to keep you updated this was yes. this was definitely a very exciting piece of news that came out a couple days ago and we are we were super excited to see it we were a little bit disappointed when we realized it wasn't a full-blown dismissal mm-hmm. of jamie at this time but it's still it's a glimmer of hope and yeah. it's clear that the court is hearing what Brittany has had to say and they're understanding her and they're seeing merit in her claim. Yeah. So that's that's really exciting. But while we're talking about pop stars. Yes, child stars. Child stars who came from, were in acting, in theater, in music their whole life. Um, we are talking today about the lovely and talented Judy Garland. Better known as Frances Gum. Better known as Frances Gum. <laughs> Actually not. But. Which, thank God she changed her name. It Oof. reminded me of Anna Nicole Smith and how she yes. changed her name. She, or, and Marilyn Monroe, I think, yeah. also changed her name. for something. Oh, so many of them did so back then, So many of them, because they had these hideous names. <laughs> yeah. And this one was no exception. Yeah, this wasn't the cutest. Mm-mm. So Frances Ethel Gum was born Oof. to Frank Gum and Ethel <laughs> Milne, or Gum, and as you can see, they combine their names in the same way that Jamie and Lynn oh, Spears that's so true, so uh-huh, creepy. Combine their names to name the their youngest too. Jamie Lynn Spears, yeah. exactly. Also, their youngest. Mm-hmm. And she was actually the third-born daughter. They already yeah. had two daughters. And these parents were married back in January of 1914. Oof. And. Frank, over a hundred years ago. Over a hundred years ago, which is so spooky to think back and yeah. be like, "My goodness gracious!" Like, yeah. this was really a different time. It was. And one thing that really casts light on how different of a time it was back then was the fact that Frank Gum had some cold feet going into the wedding mm. because he was gay. He did yeah. not like women, yeah. and that was not just a rumor. No, he actually would hit on dudes. And hook up with dudes pretty regularly. It was well known. It was a well known thing. And what would happen is he would hit on dudes wherever he was living at the time. He would hook up with one or like grab one or do whatever. And they were always younger. He was into the younger Mm. guys, into the pool boy type. And eventually he'd get discovered by somebody or outed by somebody and he would move or Mm -hmm. he would disappear for a while. And then he'd come back when things had kind of cooled off. Right. So. In this instance, I guess he came back from one such sabbatical, <laughs> grabbed his sweetheart Ethel, and moved with her yes. to Grand Rapids. Yes. Now, that's not Grand Rapids, Michigan, folks. That's Grand Rapids, Minnesota, which apparently there's two different places. Did not know that. Uh, but... Apparently, it's the pride of So the Grand lesser Rapids. grand. <laughs> the lesser grand, Minnesota. <laughs> 
And yeah, they moved there and they got their show on the road, literally, because they yeah. were a musically talented couple. And they started a theater company. Yes. Uh, he operated a local movie house. Which is so weird. Like, that's how it was re- referred to back then. Right. Um, and like you said, there were very, they were very much a performing family. They had their daughters, Mary Jane and Virginia. And then there's kind of an interesting story, actually, to how Judy came to be. Yeah, because she shouldn't have come to be. No. At least the way Ethel wanted it. She yeah. did not want this third child at all. No. And, and you have to wonder, too, with kind of the how things were at the time and being married to a gay man obviously that people you know knew was gay he was out there meeting other men wherever they they moved to and he actually frank went to a doctor asking to procure an abortion for his wife to abort judy and of course they romanticized this whole story and they're like the doctor looked at him and said no i'm not gonna let you do this she has to have this baby which great yeah like, thanks a lot <laughs> like way to screw me over but yeah, yeah. Ugh, poor ethel honestly like she took matters into her own hands at one point and when the doctor refused to give her the abortion she actually took to drinking castor oil oh, God. and she would go on really bumpy car rides she was Ugh. trying to do anything to spontaneously miscarry but unfortunately or fortunately all of her attempts failed. The doctor refused, and Francis Ethel Gum was born. Yes, yes, a, a lovely Gemini right here. Yes, June tenth. Yeah, June tenth, nineteen twenty-two. Judy, right out of the womb, who wasn't yet Judy, she was Francis Ethel Gum. Yeah. She actually was referred to as Baby Gum or Babe. And she actually was really into performing so much so that at the age of two, her two big sisters were already performing, Virginia and Mary Jane, and she saw them performing and begged her father to put her on stage at his little production company, Rinky Dink Theater. And, you know, she finally, she joined her sisters because she begged so hard to go up and she went on stage with Mary Jane and Virginia and my God, they could not get her off the stage because she wouldn't stop singing over and over and over again. She loved performing so much. Well, I think she was one of those people that like look at Shirley Temple and there's just been other Michael Jackson, like I know controversial figures, but still you look at children and there are certain children that just have this innate ability. And it sounds like she was really one of those people Where it was just like, at two years old, she just knew how to command a room and get up there and really perform. Yes, that's so true. And she was reported as having this very adult-like voice, which is really funny because that's the exact same way that Britney was back in the day. So true. Yeah, she had that very mature voice and um, very kind of like... Sultry. Sultry, ladylike, whatever voice. And you'd see this little girl get up on stage and sing in this kind of like raspy sultry you know adult woman's woman voice. voice yeah and it was very disarming but very impressive at the same time yeah. so she sort of started gaining notoriety for that not long after this though as we kind of talked about frank anywhere they moved you know he was out there kind of finding other men young men boys i don't know they say young men but who knows what that kind of means back then um and so he was apparently caught i guess one too many times and the family actually moved to, I'm going to call it Lancaster. I don't mm-hmm. know if they say Lancaster or however they say it, California. 
Yeah, another town named after a more common version of the town that we know of yes. in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. <laughs> Horse and buggy land. Right? This was Lancaster, California, so no Amish there, I assume. Yeah, probably not. But, yeah, they took their show on the road, and they took the Gum Sisters, who were sometimes called the Gum Drops, um, <laughs> out on the road, That's and they cute. sort of, they were out there performing. And they all performed as a trio, but everybody liked judy or a baby at the time the best because she had this grown woman voice and ethel her mother quickly aimed focus on judy and judy alone even though all three of them were a, a traveling act together ethel honed in on judy because she realized that the real talent and the real presence lied with judy so she becomes like a big time stage mom helicopter parent she starts getting really paranoid about judy being out in the world she starts keeping her at home like the bubble boy because she's (laughs) terrified that she's gonna get injured or hurt or corrupted otherwise and it just becomes judy as the commodity and ethel as this manager kind of saleswoman of this commodity peddling her up and down the road to try and get her into different acts yeah and around this time is kind of when she actually had like developed her her new name too so uh like we said they were the gum sisters and this whole spelling and the name oftentimes got misspelled or misprinted at one point uh, there was a newspaper article that said the Glum Sisters, Ooh. which is just not very flattering. The Baby Glum. Yeah, it doesn't put the pep in your step the no, way you want them to. No, I don't want to see the Glum Sisters. No, uh, yeah. not during the Great Depression anyway. Oh, yeah, there's a bunch of different stories about how Judy and, you know, the, their whole act kind of came up with these new names. But one of the main ones is Garland being picking that name after a New York drama critic named Robert Garland. And then apparently Judy actually picked her own name after a song. I don't know if it was named, the song was called Judy or there was something about Judy in the song, but um, that's kind of how she came up with Judy Garland, which of course is one of these like beautiful Hollywood names, very typical of the times. So meanwhile, Ethel is taking Judy on the road and taking her to audition after audition. Oh my God. She signs her up for this school for professional children, which is basically just an easy way for parents to avoid <laughs> accusations of sweatshopping their kids oh. because the school was a total front. It was just a way to kind of make your kid a professional kid, a working kid yeah, at, at any a young cost. age. Exactly. And so Ethel actually was thought to be banging different executives after Judy auditioned for them. So Judy would audition. She'd do her little song and dance, whatever. She'd leave. And Ethel would stay behind for a long time. A little casting couch situation. A little casting couch sitch and would... I guess, go to any length to make sure that her daughter got the job. Wow. And including giving Judy pep pills, she called them, and sleeping tablets. So this was the beginning of Judy's abuse of all kinds of medications. That was just not her fault at all. She was completely just led astray, starting with her mother, who just, it was thought to be at the time that... um, child actors child you know starlets whatever should be given these pet pills to be kept awake because obviously kids just can't be 
awake and alert and their best for that long of a period of time. And of course, then they'd get too peppy mm-hmm. and wouldn't be able to fall asleep. So you'd give them a bunch of sleeping tablets to put them to so sleep. So up them, then down them. Yeah, up them when they got to be up and you down them when they got to be down. Yeah. And this also began the emotional abuse by Ethel, wherein Ethel would just emotionally abandon Judy and sometimes actually abandon her. There were times when they'd go on the road and Ethel would leave Judy at the hotels where they were staying and wouldn't tell her when or if she would come back. And so she'd sometimes leave her for hours at a time. She'd come back and be like, well, you're lucky I came back this time because next time I might not. And Judy, of course, would apologize profusely and say, I'm going to be a good kid or promise her a million different things just to keep her around because she was making these threats. And it was just a clear abusive cycle that Ethel had worked Judy into at this point. Yeah, so really developing a lot of healthy, uh, you know, <laughs> attachment and good coping mechanisms and all that type of stuff, it sounds like. Completely, especially when Frank started hitting on teens again. Oh. And he, I think, focused specifically on the star of a high school basketball team. Oh, lovely. And so he was sort of going around to these different basketball games with the team <laughs> and hanging out with this teen b-ball or star. And Zach Efron. Zach Efron, get your head in the game. <laughs> yes, he Troy was out Bolton, on the court. Should I say? <laughs> should I dance? Should I play yeah. basketball? I Bet don't know. It. It's a tough call. <laughs> Bet on it. And Ethel, being the jealous type, was like, you know what? I'm gonna stir up some some sass of my own. I'm gonna start hooking up with a married man. Oh, lovely. So she starts doing her thing. Frank's doing his thing, and. It turns out that the man that Ethel chose to hook up with, the married guy, was extra mean to Judy. And Ethel never defended Judy. So it was just this horrible cycle where Ethel and the kids were in L.A. with this nasty guy. And he would berate and tease her. And Ethel would just sort of sit by and let him do it. And he would tease her from everything about her weight, about being clumsy, whatever. And... It just started, you know, putting in her head that she was less than and she just developed a ton of different complexes and stuff like that issues. Exactly. I mean, think about it, too. Like, she's still a young teen, you know, kind of finding her way in this crazy industry, too. And her mom's supposed to be the one person that's kind of guiding her and she's just ugh. dumping all over. Yeah, making her feel awful. Like, I just can't imagine. Yeah, yeah. So, and while Ethel is touring with the kids in L.A. at the School for Professional Children, Frank is stuck by himself back in Lancaster, California. He's no longer got the family man shield to hide behind. It's sort of coming to light, like, okay, this guy's a little bit of a pervert. He's hitting on high schoolers. He's slapping their butts. He's Mm. hitting on dudes at his theater company. All these boys start spreading rumors about Frank, like, oh, Frank (laughs) would do X, Y, and Z to get me to do A, B, and C to him. They really were nasty towards him. So he starts yet another relationship with a kid, a last-ditch effort, word gets out, and it completely ruins his reputation in Lancaster. And so he comes out to L.A., joins his family, and... That's where this magical journey of Judy with MGM really begins. Um, So in 1935, Frank has just joined the fam out in L.A. And 
Judy is now Judy. <laughs> and she is auditioning. Finally, it's her big break. She's auditioning for the mayor in Metro Goldwyn Mayor. And Judy is performing and immediately gets signed to a contract. I'm She's not 13 years though. old. Like, yeah, she had such stage presence. Mayor, her, she knocked his socks <laughs> off. He didn't even know what had hit him. And he recognized her talent immediately. Yeah. And Judy gets signed on to sing the song that she had sang as an audition on the radio. And Judy is told, listen, your father is actually dying. He's How awful. So horrible. He's back home. He's like looking back on his life. He's like, what did I do? All I did was hit on teenage boys. Right. And this is the culmination of my life. And he's dying. He has spinal meningitis. He's on his deathbed. And Judy's told this. It gets relayed to Judy that her father, Frank, is dying. And it's the night of the big performance, the radio performance, that's going to get broadcast all over the place. And it's going to put her on the map for the first time. And they say, Judy, this is going to be probably the last thing your dad will ever hear. Sad. I know. He's on his deathbed. He's dying of meningitis. And he has a radio by his bed. Judy, you got to sing. No pressure. Though. Yeah, no pressure. It's the last thing your dying dad will ever hear. But And your first big premiere And your first big break. But you'll be fine. Don't worry. Yeah. So Judy sings her balls off. She knocks everyone's socks off. She's better than ever. She sings as though she's singing to bring her dad back to life. And Aww. she kills it. Absolutely kills it. And kills her dad. And kills her dad in the process. He dies shortly after the performance. Yeah, sadly. <laughs> this is the foray of Judy's kind of relationship with Metro Goldwyn Mayor MGM, and especially with Mayor, who becomes her new father figure in a lot of ways. An abusive, horrible father Terrible, figure, but, but a father figure nonetheless. Yeah. And he was abusive early on. From maybe one of her first auditions for him, he says something to her like, Hey, Judy, I could tell you sang that from the heart and then puts his hand on her breast to show her where the heart was. Wonderful. Judy said, hey, listen, you can point to where I'm supposed to be singing from. Thank you very much. And he, in the ultimate act of manipulation, breaks down in tears. Oh, God. Truly shocking. Now, as nasty as he was, he also did try to help Judy in her career. So it's really like a double-sided coin here. He was totally Jekyll and Hyde on her as nasty as he could be he could be just as wonderful and especially you know really pushed her into the career that she ended up having yeah and I do have a another um really fun nickname that he gave her (laughs) yes (laughs) one of my favorites yes yeah so she was obviously around this is the golden age of Hollywood she's around all of these beauties and He, of course, you know, just exacerbated her insecurities by referring to her as the little hunchback. Oh, oh, great. How charming. Oh, you got a buffalo hump over there, Judy. Which we both have at this point. I think it's the cell phones are creating these disgusting, unsightly things. But, yeah, my little hunchback. Yeah. And now, meanwhile, Judy's out here like, oh, I'm this little hunchback. Great. Because the girl never had a real father figure. Her dad was always gallivanting around with high schoolers. Yeah. So she probably (laughs) thought that was a really endearing term. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, the poor girl. Oh, God. Yeah. It was was hard, though, out there. So 
again, she's surrounded by all of these iconic people that the actors and actresses that we now, you know, know their names. It was really interesting to see these people as young people back in the day on these sets. She said that at the time, California law, they had to have three hours of class a day. And she would be in class. They'd have their little studio, their little class on the studio lot. And it would be her, Alana Turner, Elizabeth Taylor, Mickey Rooney. like All these well-known people. Casual graduating class. Right. How interesting. But the hard thing was that, you know, as much as her mother pushed her and like you're saying how much as, you know, much as Mr. Mayor pushed her too, um, it just seemed like there was never a break. So the kids would get really excited because Mr. Mayor would invite them over. Of course, he has, you know, these wonderful properties, houses, this great beach house. Which is kind of giving me Jeff Epstein vibes. I know. Very much so. (laughs) Just saying. Oh, can you imagine? I can't imagine back then. I'm sure stuff was going on in there that we would never want to know about. I know. And it probably will never be known just because of, like, the times and stuff not being, you know as recorded or documented as it is. But yeah, I can only imagine. Um, so he would invite these kids over to his beach house and they're all excited. Oh, great. We're going to get to go over and go swimming and, you know, have a good time. But pretty much when they were there, he would have the press come and it would be all about portraying these kids as like these all American kids. And they were just expected to be on the whole time that they were there and, get the right shots and have the right attitude, smile, you know, all that stuff. And then pretty much once the press was done getting the pictures or the shots that they they needed, he pretty much told them to just go home. (laughs) Like they didn't even get to like swim or anything like that. So it's kind of sad that, you know, even the things that could have been really fun, like you get these kids that are working, give them a little break, get let them go to this fun house and go swimming. Didn't even happen. It was all still about you know, making money and getting the promotional shots and everything. So it just is is really sad that it just, they always had to be on. Yeah. Yeah. That is a shame. And it's amazing too, how just everything was like a dig at Judy. Everything was chipping away at her self-confidence. Her first movie, unfortunately was called pigskin parade. Oh, not great. Well, she said herself, she felt like she looked like a pig in pigtails. It was her first role. She was 13 years old. She was sure it was going to be her last role, which honestly I think fed into what ended up happening to her on the Wizard of Oz set and why she was so eager to please and so desperate for it to be a success because she really was convinced that she'd never act again. She was disgusted by how she looked. She was ashamed, couldn't even believe that she was in the movie in the first place. And MGM did nothing to help that. They shamed Judy into starving herself. Of course. It did actually end up backfiring because Judy ended up having to eat just for comfort to try and make herself feel better, which, hey, we're all too familiar with (laughs) over here. But they would give her only lettuce and chicken soup on set. And they had spies. They would watch her. Awful. If she ate anything solid, basically, they would, you know, publicly humiliate her. They'd reprimand her. Ethel, the mom, agreed to spy on her at home so Ugh. that she wouldn't have any opportunity to backslide. Now, Judy did have a secret candy supply, as any fat kid oh, does. Love that. On. Now, meanwhile, she's the skinniest fat kid I've ever I seen. <laughs> um, but fat kid at heart. And I say that lovingly, of course. Yes. And yeah, she just, everybody was against her. And 
she was put on diet pills at that point. Which is crazy. Which is crazy. So early on. And it was phenobarbitals. And it was thought of at the time as this miracle drug. Of course. And writers would take them and they would be incredibly <laughs> like well written. They were writing They were just high. typing quicker yeah, than they, they ever were, thought. They were typing their way around the moon oh at this God. point. They could not believe how incredibly focused these drugs made them. And it's no surprise because we now know that those drugs were probably your modern day ADHD medications. Right. They were methamphetamines. They make your heart go fast. They make everything else go slow in the world. Yeah. You are moving at a million miles a minute. Essentially, it's cocaine. So right. it's the perfect thing to get a kid up and at them and be perky and at the top of their game for those money shots. So it was just, I mean, obviously Judy was already no stranger to the world of drugs. She had already been introduced to drugs by her mother, but now she had just one more drug to make her do one more thing that the older people in her life wanted her to do. Yeah, and it's just, oh, it's so crazy and just, I just feel so bad for her. So she was, she was small. She was tiny. She was 4'11", and they very much wanted her to maintain 95 pounds as her weight and like you said they would just do anything to keep her there and you know give her again the uppers to get her up in the morning and then give her medication to put her to sleep at night and it just that's got to take a toll on your body there's no way that that's good for somebody especially starting at such a young age yeah yeah and becoming dependent so early on i mean you don't know any other way there's drugs for you to wake up there's drugs for you to go to sleep body starts to lose its own signals i'm sure because it's so reliant on this influx of hormones chemicals what have you to tell it what to do when to do it so it's it's unfortunate and um it's no wonder that she did end up just balls deep in a in a whole mess of trouble but it was around this time that MGM actually bought the rights to The Wizard of Oz. They had no clue what they were going to do with it. It was a weird book. They, I know. You know they didn't it, really, it's really know what the It's really interesting that this became such a thing because it, if you look back at it, it's like, how did this get picked? Oh, yeah. And it's a, it was a creepy book. It was really <laughs> dark. And at the time, people were kind of looking for like something to feel positive about and something campy and cute so that's why there was such a mix in the movie itself of these like cute campy things with these dark creepy themes and from the beginning the producers of the movie wanted judy the role of dorothy they knew all right this is our girl ironically it was louis mayer who else of course that didn't want judy to be in the movie he actually wanted to borrow shirley temple from 20th century fox she unfortunately declined as did somebody else i think i think judy was their third choice oh really but they finally settled on judy it was lucky for her that they did or maybe really unlucky Mm. because it was probably the movie that killed her yeah, yeah. And it was interesting, just some of the facts behind it. So um, they actually paid, which is crazy at this time, I think, in 1938, MGM paid $75,000 for the screen rights for this, which, which is crazy. sounds like nothing. But I know. It's... But at that time, can you imagine like a, a house costs $1,000? Right. I don't even know. And then another weird thing was that they actually were considering they wanted Dorothy to be blonde. 
And so for several weeks, they actually had her wear a wig until they finally determined, all right, this isn't going to work. We're taking this off. We're going with her natural hair. And so the film actually took one year and $3 million to film, which is a lot. Especially considering how poorly everything went. I mean, it was like a parade of horribles on the set. Not only, I mean, from the jump, from the inception, even just the writers had so many different issues. Screenwriters were fired multiple times. Since it was the 1930s, they needed it to be more palatable. And Oz kind of became this dream instead of a real place like it was in the books. And in the books, you know, Oz was this kind of nasty place. It wasn't this green, sparkling city. The author actually intended it for it to be a gray, gloomy, dull city where everybody wears green glasses. So things appear to be much more fantastical than they actually are. And obviously that was completely abandoned for the movie where this is this fantastical dream city but this was this was a big production so it was actually a cast of 520 people in total which is crazy it was also the largest group of little people ever assembled for a project like this (laughs) what a goal to hit yeah talk about little people big world right but they were the nastiest little people ever they they did some stuff these little people the the munchkins actually were rumored to have been hiring sex workers to come to their trailers because they were bored and they were also the lowest paid actors on set i think even lower than toto oh you're kidding i know talk about discrimination of the uh the ableists over here wow and yeah these munchkins they also had a real like mean side and apparently (laughs) they all banded together to bully dorothy whoa yeah so they tortured judy apparently they would like reach up her skirt and grab her they'd trip her they'd do anything to embarrass her so she was just constantly humiliated by this like a blast yeah this giant band of little people here which is really interesting it's the largest and the meanest group (laughs) of little people ever to be assembled so the whole movie the cost of the set the danger of the set everything the asbestos was, on the, the set asbestos on the, oh my god that's so true i just know that fact off off the top of my head is right a fun fact, that is a fun fact yeah there were just horrendous working conditions on the set Ugh. starting with the costumes so they were all super duper involved to the point where every actor pretty much needed to arrive at 4 a.m each oh, day crazy they couldn't leave for like 16 hours so not only are you in this incredibly heavy costume, incredibly hot costume, you can't take that shit off for 16 hours. You're in that thing and you are stuck, probably feeling like a sweaty sausage by the end of the day. The lion costume was made from a real lion hide and it was 90 pounds. Can you imagine that? No. No air conditioning exists even. Like you don't even have that option anywhere. You sure don't. And- Because it was the first film shot in Technicolor, or one of the first films shot in Technicolor, 
they wanted to bring out the brightness and the vibrance of the colors. Mm -hmm. So to do that, they had stadium style lighting aimed directly at the set. So it would get well above 100 degrees every single day. What a blast. So not only are you wearing a 90 pound lion, but you're sweating your butt off. Apparently that lion suit stunk to high heaven. God, can you imagine? imagine? The witch, Margaret Hamilton, was green for weeks after filming wrapped. <laughs> and the worst of all was the Tin Man. Uh, I heard about this. The, the original Tin Man? The OG Tin Man yeah. was a guy named Buddy Epson. And he was cast in the role. And to look like metal, oh. they coated him with this silver metallic paint. And they caked the makeup on his face. Probably lead-filled. Yep. Well, it was (laughs) aluminum-based powder. And he was totally covered 24-7. Obviously, you know, had to get in at the crack of dawn. Had to be in his outfit for 16 hours. And he couldn't breathe because the costume was so heavy. It was weighing down his shoulders and his chest. So he was basically getting crushed. Oh, my God. Finally, he collapses on set because he was essentially aspirating all this aluminum paint and powder. Ugh. He finally gets sent to the hospital, goes into the iron lung for two <laughs> oh, weeks. Oh, ironic. I know. Isn't that? Oh, my gosh. If I only had a lung. <laughs> yeah. Like his own little rib Right? Cage. He's an iron lung himself. Yeah. And the doctors, it took them about two seconds to be like, buddy, you breathed in the aluminum powder. It's causing severe respiratory problems. Your insides are basically turning into metal. They're coated in aluminum. There's no way for them to get the oxygen they need. So he had this month-long recuperation ahead of him. And the whole time, God bless him, the actor that he was, he worked on his lines. He was working, focusing really hard on getting better. And he was ordered back to set only halfway through his recovery, tried to get there, the dutiful actor as he was, but the nurse intercepted him on his way out. (laughs) And eventually he found out that when he was not even done his recovery, the studio replaced him with a guy named Jack Haley because they thought Epson was faking (laughs) and they couldn't even bother to wait for him to recover from the movie that almost killed him. Poor guy. The fact that they replaced Epson in, like, two seconds with Jack Haley sent a really clear message to the cast. Like, you oh, all are... you got to be on point. Yep, you got to be on point. Y'all are disposable. I can get rid of you, and I can get a new one in two seconds. To the left, to the left, mm, okay? Yeah. I can get another year <laughs> by tomorrow. And that's exactly what he did. And this... Judy Garland. Judy Gar. <laughs> And this new Tin Man, he was put through the ringer, too. Uh, His suit was made of metal. He couldn't sit down. He could only lean for 16 hours a day. So this is like Thon here. It's a lot on your feet there. It's too much. Flatten those arches. Flatten those bad boys out. (laughs) He was so effing hot. And those stage lights were burning a hole in that damn thing. Plus you got some metal on your face like your pores aren't breathing oh yeah it's just it's not good for anybody no and so judy had a corset and she was starving herself um they were trying to make her look like a preteen so they corseted her boobs some some Lindsay lohan stuff going on big time big time they were oh my gosh they tied her so tight it is ridiculous and she looked fine. They had already starved her in the first place to get her God. ready for the role because they had thought that she was too big to play Dorothy. 
just ridiculous. So she was dying, couldn't breathe. <laughs> so she was dying. So she was dying. And then the Wicked Witch, so she's out here. Her first appearance as the Wicked Witch, she disappears in a puff of smoke and flames, right? Mm-hmm. Trap door's supposed to open and oh, swallow no. her up while the smoke and flames pop out. Don't worry, the door <gasps> malfunctioned, y'all. Oh, and her copper-based body paint <gasps> caught fire. Oh, my God. She got sent to the ER with second-degree burns. It took her six weeks to recover. Oh, my God. Terrible. Oh, what so, a time to be alive. What a time. I mean, I'm glad we weren't. <laughs> it was truly a Murphy's Law production. Oh Everything that could go wrong did go wrong, yeah. and it went wrong fabulously. Oh. So just like there was a revolving door for the different writers, there was also a revolving door for the different directors. There were five different ones who filled no the chair. No way. Mm-hmm. And Victor Fleming was probably responsible for about 80% of the production. He was a much more stable guy, but really wild and abusive. And in one incident, Judy was actually really uncomfortable with a scene where she has to slap the cowardly lion. And she would kind of erupt into laughter and couldn't really do it and was giving him sort of girly slaps and stuff. And Fleming apparently takes Judy aside and smacks her across the face, says, get out there and work. Oh, my God. And it only took her one time to finish the scene after that. So it was just so clear that Judy's willingness to do anything to make the movie successful and Fleming's knowledge of this, he just, he totally plagued on her. He called her fat. He called her clumsy. He called her a hunchback. (laughs) He, you know. I wonder if she had some type of, I like. No, I Because I don't, I don't see this hunchback, but okay. Oh, I know. It's ridiculous. Um, So, yeah. And as we said, I mean, Mayor was the real Mr. Mayor. He was the mayor of. He of, was the mayor of abuse yeah. because he had Judy, like we said, lose 12 pounds before she even started filming. Then God. once she got there, he ordered her to crash diet. He constantly bullied her about the weight. He always was on her about it. And a couple times he groped her in his office. And he was constantly feeding her cigarettes to suppress her appetite. She was so weak on set that she was completely dependent on the barbiturates to keep her awake. There were uppers for work, downers for sleep. She's just, she's constantly on drugs throughout the production. So finally to you know, launch the movie and promote the movie. It's like all this work that went into it. That was just the beginning. That was just getting the movie done. They still had to promote it. So MGM actually sent Judy and Mickey Rooney to New York City, where they were performing 10 kind of mini shows a day, actually, to promote the Wizard of Oz. Which, which is like factory level. It's crazy. Like child labor law be damned. Yeah, yeah, she and to give you some some facts on just kind of how things worked with these with her career and kind of anybody that signed with these big companies, these big movie companies. So typically it would be like three to four pictures a year was kind of the norm, which is crazy to think about. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot to do. That's, you know, a couple months and you're just up and at it doing a whole picture Um, To give kind of an example, in 1940 and 1941, so this is kind of looking at 
all that she did and what she did to promote, you know, the films and whatever. She was in 40 radio appearances. 40. She, 40. In one year. Yeah. Nine, well, 1940 well, and 1941. But that's just radio appearances. So 40 radio appearances. She cut 18 singles and what? starred in six feature films. Oh, Can my Can you picture God. that? Like, I'm, again, just thinking of Britney Spears. Like, how long does it take some of these artists to even just put together, uh, like, a CD? Well, not right. a CD now, an album, whatever. Um, but it's so true. It's like the amount of effort that it must take and the and amount of six work. six feature films. That's insane. And especially knowing. singles, 40 radio appearance. I just. Well, mm. and knowing back then what that entailed yeah. probably and how much more work it was, how many more hours Oh, my were God. Required. Yeah, because the tech wasn't there. So you really had to like. Make up for it with we yourself. We got to film it again. Like. Yeah. Oh, it's so true. It had to be perfect because there were no special effects to cover up your blunders. Right. Um, so yeah, she starts her first relationship with David Rose and he is a British musician. Judy was only 19 at the time. David was 31. So that's like our age. That's like us dating a 19 year old. Oh, and just graduated high school. Oh yeah. Like, come on. And now Ethel, Judy's mom was really against the marriage. Not because she was worried about her daughter being too young to get married, but she was worried that it might hurt the youthful oh, image God. that they created. Hmm. Not the best. Yeah. Um, so one of the worst kind of darkest parts of this relationship is that in 1942, Judy actually finds out that she's pregnant. Mm. And at that time, her mother, her doting mother, and the studio, MGM, pressure her together to abort the child yeah and her husband at the time david kind of sides with the studio and she just never forgives him for that um so she did end up having her first abortion then and separating with her husband in 1944 yeah yeah it's pretty sad yeah so she breaks up with him she starts dating this guy Tyrone Power around that time. She meets this guy at a party. He's married. And she's still sort of separated from David Rose, but maybe not entirely divorced. Tyrone was considered on the DL as bisexual and mm. super slutty. <laughs> and he never gave up men when he was with women, including his wife. He always wow. had these like side piece men. But, of course, our Judy thought she could satisfy him just as a woman. She gets pregnant with Tyrone with his baby, threatens him, if you don't leave your wife, I'll abort the baby. You can guess what happened next. He didn't leave the wife, and that was Judy's second abortion. Just nasty. These people, I mean, these are the type of guys that Judy dealt with. The bar is on the floor. She really just cannot get any respect from these guys and it's no wonder because she was objectified from the time that she was a child by these much older studio executives yeah she just doesn't have kind of the i don't know she like if you're in that industry at such a young age and you think so much is based on your appearance based on you know being called the hunchback amongst (laughs) other things you know all your life i can only imagine how difficult, you know, it is to find a healthy, stable relationship. Yeah, it's so true. Um, so her second spouse, um, st- well, she started dating who became her second spouse, Mr. Vicente Minnelli, 
1944 when she was working on Meet Me in St. Louis. And the director was Mr. Minnelli, who wasn't a super popular guy in the industry. (laughs) And they started dating really shortly after they Mm -hmm. met. And I think it was really because, like, Judy was finally captured by Vicente in this beautiful way. Like, he had this way of shooting that just... It was like every shot of her was just stunningly gorgeous. And it was it really just reflected Flattering. her. Yeah, it reflected her natural beauty. I think she just loved being loved that way because mm-hmm. nobody had ever shown her true love before that was, you know, not based on something that she could provide to them. So she really kind of fell for him. Um, but <laughs> unfortunately, this lovely fellow, oh. Mr. Minnelli, he was very similar to Judy's dad. And you say that you go for your parents, you find somebody who's similar to your father or your mother, whatever. And Judy did just that with Vicente because he was a closeted gay man as well. Mm -hmm. And she just, oh my gosh, she walked in on him one day in their bedroom, their marital bed with a dude. And Judy freaked out ran into the bathroom and slit her wrist literally now she didn't go too deep she was just doing enough i guess to sort of make a threat and everything like that (laughs) and you know she just she couldn't take it it was awful it was really bad and right around the time that the filming of the movie that vicente was directing and judy was starring in wrapped Judy checked into a facility. So then on March 12th, 1946, she had her first child, good old Liza. (laughs) (laughs) And it was interesting because her contract actually was almost up with MGM. And she was really looking forward to spending time with Liza, just kind of, I don't know, moving on to that next stage in life. But then the studio lured her back with a contract for two pictures a year at $150,000 each, which, again, can you imagine that in 1946? Right. Good money at the time. Mm -hmm. And they also promised that she could work with her husband. So it was kind of the offer she couldn't refuse. She went back. And I think this was one of the first films that she went back to was The Pirate. And... um, I don't think I mentioned, actually, when she was kind of really trying to, like, go off the medication altogether. She was trying to get clean, honestly, for the first time in her life, if you think about it. But then going back to the pirate, she ended up getting back right back on medication. And the doctors were pretty much ready to just ready and willing to pump her, you know, full of medication. At one point, she actually had five different doctors giving her medication which is just insane it's nuts yeah and um her husband Minelli, of course he said that he definitely noticed a change in her that the pills really changed who she was and it was really difficult amongst other things obviously on their relationship when she went back to kind of her old ways getting back on the pills yeah yeah And it was like this really dramatic, wonderful thing when she got off the pills or when she was off of them for a second or resolved to be off of them. She spectacularly threw all her pills into the East River and this big, you know, show of dedication. And 
she really wanted to be clean for Liza and Mm -hmm. really thought she could do it. But unfortunately, the withdrawal was just way too much. That plus the fact that she was probably suffering from postpartum depression. She had a husband who was gay. She had a husband who was gay. She was dealing with that. She was dealing with the fact that her husband had sort of pressured her into signing on to this five-year contract with MGM again because under the contract, he was benefiting as well. So she sort of felt betrayed by that and by somebody who had never betrayed her before and who had always Mm -hmm. seemed like he was out for just her. So... She was she was going through a lot, and it makes sense that she did eventually separate from Mr. Minnelli. Um, so just before they separated, though, in 1948, the FBI, I feel like this is like the first time all of this type of stuff happened. It's the first time for Hollywood, the first time the FBI investigated drug abuse in Hollywood. So 1948. And, oh, surprise, surprise. Judy actually found out that her own doctor, the one I guess that was her main doctor, was addicted himself. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. And so the FBI, to kind of try to help Judy, uh, told Mare that Judy needed treatment and she needed a year off. And Mare refused because he had $14 million tied up in her at the time. And um, but then, you know, kind of decided, OK, We've got to give her a break. Like, they kind of promised her a decent amount of time off. She started to take that time off. And literally after a week's break, they called her in and brought her back to work to get back to set oh my onto God. The, next, the next film. The so, show must go on, huh? It just, it, it's just awful. Like, of course she couldn't get, you know, off of these medications fully because she wasn't given the opportunity or the time needed to yeah yeah and she i think is quoted as famously sort of saying something to the effect of you know somebody had called her on the carpet about taking the pills and said something like you got to get off these pills they're destroying you they're making you crazy and she said back, you know, these pills are the only reason I can perform at the level I yeah. do. Like, they're they're the only thing that's keeping me going. Yep. So, which is a classic addict thing to say. So, But you have to think, like, she was started on these things at age, like, 13. Oh, so. yeah, she was wholly dependent on them. Ugh. And it wasn't her fault. You know, yeah. it was the only coping mechanism that she ever learned from childhood on. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um... So then around, I think it was like 1949, 1948, 1949, she separated from uh, Minnelli and she wanted a break before the next film, Annie Get Your Gun, which was in 1949. And, oh, wait, (laughs) instead of a break, let's give her electroshock therapy. (laughs) Great. Gotta love that because that always works really well. Yeah, that's that's really going to help. And this was when we started to see this um, pattern that Judy would later on kind of repeat in the films that she starred in later on. So she was late to set. You know, she'd show up, but she kind of wasn't all there. There were issues with her. And again, this led to another hospitalization. And she then went on after that to go and finish another film called Summerstock. After this, she was promised an eight-month vacation, finally. Ugh, at last. But don't worry. Just three (laughs) weeks later, she was summoned by the studio 
to replace June Allen in Royal Wedding. So great. She didn't even get a full month off. Oh, <laughs> my gosh. This girl can't catch a break. Yeah, it just it, it's pretty awful. And it's just pretty crazy to think. So she continued to have these issues with showing up to set. She didn't show up for rehearsal. And finally, they made the decision to replace her. And then eventually actually ended the contract with MGM. And in her 15 years, which this is just kind of crazy to think about, in 15 years, she made 29 movies, which even if you broke that down to two movies a year, which we know it wasn't spaced out like that, that's still a lot. That's a ton. Yeah, yeah. And so... There she is, 28, and considered unemployable. Right. Which is just crazy. That is crazy. Oh, my gosh. And obviously, this was very difficult on her psyche. And just 48 hours after being fired from MGM, she actually made a suicide attempt. So we know she was definitely at her lowest then. Uh, It's just so sad. It's such a tragic kind of roller coaster with so many downs in this poor girl's life so it was around this time another pattern that obviously repeated throughout um, judy's life was just these failed relationships so it was around this time that she got together with her third husband sydney luft and although they knew each other since the late 30s judy and movie producer Sydney left only started dating once she and Minnelli's marriage finally uh, ended so at the beginning of their relationship she gets pregnant and to favor her career you guessed it mm-hmm. she underwent another abortion yeah. I believe we're up to three now um, and in June of 1952 Judy married Sydney. And he also took over the role of her manager. Now, this is also giving me big oh, Britney Spears, Sam Lutfi vibes. Oh, Lufty or Luft? Lufty, Lufty, <laughs> or is it Luft? <laughs> um, yeah, but just clearly intermingling of the personal and the business situation here. And they welcomed their daughter, Lorna, shortly Lorna after. Dune. Yeah, Lorna Dune. And her third and final child, Joseph, was born in 1955. Now, Judy's addiction to drugs and alcohol is roaring at this point. Yeah. She's also battling depression. She's battling anxiety. And it was all just way too much for her and Sydney's marriage. And they end up divorcing in 1965. I do have an interesting kind of just like another sad Judy story. (sighs) Um, So she was in A Star is Born. This is, I guess, like a remake of this famous film, A Star is Born. And it was really looking to capitalize on her success, kind of getting back out there. And um, after it premiered, there was kind of some controversy with 30 minutes actually being cut from her kind of main big performance in it. And it didn't receive the same accolades that you know, it, it had when it first came out at the premiere because of the minutes that were cut from it and just so sad. So she was not able to attend the Oscars because she was actually went into labor with her son, Joey <laughs> and NBC was actually so confident still though, that she would win that they sent a film crew to her hospital room to televise oh her my acceptance God. speech. 
Sadly, she did not win. Oh, no. Grace Kelly won. I didn't write down for what. But so sadly, it just it like the way it was described was like they were already all set up. She's, in, you know, in her room. They've got the cameras, the lights, everything. And within seconds, as soon as they hear, nope, she didn't win. It's like they just cut that, like break it all down. Oh, leave. my God. Nobody says anything. And she's just left alone there in her room. Like, That's it's just so messed so up. sad. So, so sad. Wow. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Judy really, she pulled a full Kris Jenner, honestly, in my opinion on this. She actually, three months after kind of a star was born, a star wasn't born because this thing crashed and burned, made no money. (laughs) (laughs) It actually brought in no profits. What? Yeah, yeah. And I think based on the stuff I've seen, like, they cut out so much. Like, it really, at the premiere before stuff was cut, like, everybody was like, oh, this is amazing. And then 30 minutes were cut. A star wasn't born. A star was crashed not born. And A star died. <laughs> uh, and so, like, no profits. Judy, again, is on the all-time low. Like, in her hospital room after having a That's child, horrible. people are just like, all right, peace, we're out. Like, but she did pull a Kris Jenner in that three months after a star was not born. Judy was back on the road. <laughs> And um, good old uh, Lufty here made a deal with CBS for her television debut. And she actually had this kind of like documentary talk showy kind of thing going on. I don't know. It it went well, but wasn't long lasting. But nevertheless, here we go into some big Britney vibes. 1956, she actually became the at that point, the highest paid performer in Las Vegas history. She returned to Broadway for 17 sold out weeks at the palace. So she went on tour, had her whole kind of Britney moment out there with her show, um, and then took it on to Broadway. So pretty Get big deal. here. Yeah, yeah. And something that's interesting, too, is that she actually took her kids on tour with her throughout the 1950s. Um, but again, at the time, she started developing a reputation for canceling performances, she started to battle her weight again, prescription medications, debt. What else could go what wrong? What else could go <laughs> like, wrong here? Seriously. She really was trying not to live lavishly. She actually was making some great money at the time. But where was all the money going? Like, right. she always seemed to be, you know, short for cash. And um, her husband, good old Luft again, booked her in New York City at the Metropolitan Opera House. This was a sellout engagement. She then went on a coast-to-coast tour, but clearly she was still really struggling because she actually collapsed on tour. Oh, my God, which is very Britney Spears vibes of her. Yeah, And, and you can see kind of here her struggle with different things. She actually ended up, again, 4'11", she went up to 180 pounds, and actually entered the New York ho- New York City Hospital. She had hepatitis. Um, her liver was four times the average size. Jesus. And they actually drained 20 quarts of fluid from her body. Wow. Which is just Which I can't even insane. imagine. And on her tiny frame. Yeah. Like, I can't picture them taking all of that weight oh, off of her. Just all that fluid. Like, it's awful. It's disgusting. Oh, my God. Yeah. So she's 37 at the time. And the doctor actually told her, all right, your career is over. And she actually felt a sense of relief. Like, she could just kind of like, oh, finally, you know, 
sit back, relax. And somebody finally told her, like, all right, it's done. You don't have to perform anymore. And she actually only ended up, though, retiring for five months and then went on. Very, She's a workaholic. It, That's what's so interesting yeah. about this, too. Yep. Yep. She um, she then went on to uh, sing Marilyn Monroe style for JFK in support of JFK when he was running. And then in 1961, she actually tried to have a comeback tour. Again, didn't go so great. Poor Judy. But <laughs> poor Judy. Yeah, she was just, you know, she was she was trying. She but, was trying her best, man. Yeah, yeah. It 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 was it was difficult. But um, in 1964, she seemed to kind of get herself back together, at least health wise. Her weight was back down to about 90 pounds. She flew to Sydney. She was going on tour. But then she gets to Hong Kong and nearly overdoses. Ugh, everything was going so well till Hong yeah, Kong. Yeah, Hong Kong and so long. <laughs> like, I don't know, not great. She actually shared the stage with Liza at some point. So that was, I guess, a high point. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It just seems so tragic. I know. It doesn't give a credit from there. <laughs> well. Another short-lived relationship was Judy's fourth spouse, Mark Herron. Yeah, this was another Kim Kardashian. Again, Kim Kardashian. She's got some crossovers. Kim Kardashian vibes and strong Britney vibes because she married Mark Herron after she met him at her workplace in November of 1965. It was right after she and Sydney divorced. And she and Mark got married in Las Vegas. So that was fun. But don't worry. The marriage was as short-lived as the last few. They separated only five months into their marriage. Do you know why? (laughs) (laughs) Do you? Is it because they beat each other up? No. Because... It's because he learned he would re- be responsible for half her taxes that year. What? <laughs> That's why? Yeah. Oh, so my God. Well, I thought her heart, zing, went the string of her heart <laughs> when she found out that Mark was also gay. Oh, uh, well, that could have been it, too. Yeah, because he and this actor, Henry Brandon... They actually had a really nice romance. They were together for almost three decades. Oh, that's so sad that he felt that he had to, like... Hide it and marry Judy. No offense. I mean, it sucks for Judy. I mean, yeah, but the taxes then... She was not... She was a too expensive beard there. I was just gonna say, (laughs) if you pay for a beard, good lord, you don't want to pay that much. Mm -mm. Shoot. Yeah. But, yeah, coming around to the fifth husband, husband number five, Mickey Deans. Mm -hmm. And it's a real shame because... This was the shortest of Judy's life. They tied the knot in 1969, the summer of 69, mm-hmm. and only three months later she died. I bet you won't guess what killed her. Yeah. And I it bet wasn't. You, I bet you won't guess how old she was, though, because she looks. I know. Well past she looks her years really weathered, I think, because her body had just been put through hell and back. And Mickey was actually the first husband who wasn't older than her. He was actually 12 years younger than really? her. Really? I didn't yeah, know Yeah, kind of fun. He brought the life back into her. Yeah. And Lorna was reporting as having said that he was the most unsuitable person to be with her. Oh, great. So that's so he probably good. killed her is what Lorna is <laughs> Pretty saying. much. Well, it sounds like he pretty much gave in to her no matter what oh, she asked for. So. Not good. And with an addict, you know, that's an enabler and you don't yeah, need that in your Zane life, went Jude. the string of her heart. When she died... Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Literally. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah. But yeah, it didn't go well. 
Okay. So on June 20th, it's Murray's birthday, actually. Oh, I know. Is he the reincarnated? <laughs> Judy Garland, probably. Oh, Murray Garland. He remembers his times. That's why he yeah. never shuts the fuck up. He just wants to keep <laughs> going on singing. Sing, sing with the string of his hearts. <laughs> his hearts. His hearts, plural. Oh. It grew three sizes that day. But on June 22nd, 1969, 12 days after her 47th birthday, Judy was actually found dead in the bathroom of her rented house in Belgravia, London. And at, oh, it's just so sad. The coroner came and said that the cause of death was a self-overdose of barbiturates. Her blood actually contained the equivalent of 97 milligram of capsules. So it was actually clear to the coroner that the overdose had been unintentional. There was no evidence suggested that she had committed suicide, which is crazy because she had attempted suicide a number of times. She had done these kind of stunts where she would like slit her wrists, but she would superficially slit her wrists and just to make a scene. Anyway, it just very clearly showed that there was no inflammation of her stomach lining. There was no drug residue in her stomach which indicated that the drug had been ingested over a long period of time rather than in a single dose. Oh, God. So her death certificate says that her death was accidental. And another thing supporting that the death was accidental was that Judy's physician noted that a prescription of 25 barbiturate pills was found by her bedside, half empty, and another bottle of 100 barbiturate pills was still unopened. So evidently, if she had wanted to kill herself, she would have popped them all at the same time. Yeah, yeah. But like you said, it kind of shows that she had access to a ton of this stuff and was clearly taking it consistently. So it totally makes sense. Oh, yeah. And... It was clear that regardless of whether she tried to kill herself or whether it was an accident, she was living on borrowed time for a long yeah. time. She had cirrhosis of the liver. She had a ton of different issues. Her body was just worn out. And it was clear that the eating disorder, the drug addiction, the bulimia that she most likely had just all contributed to her death. Yeah, so it's it's sad to kind of see, you know, everybody knows her for the Wizard of Oz, but it really is sad to see the true story of kind of all the struggles that Judy went through, honestly, for like the majority of her life. And you know what? There is a happy ending. They say there's only two certain things, and those are death and taxes. And upon her death, despite having earned millions during her career, Judy's estate came to 40000 which is the equivalent of about 282000 in 2020. And this is all caused by wow. years and years of mismanagement of her financial affairs by her representatives and her staff, along Again, with Again, some Britney vibes here. Oh, big Britney energy. She also was super generous toward her family Aww. and different causes, so she just was constantly giving her money away. And what ended up happening is that after her death, Liza Minnelli worked to pay off her mom's debt with the help of family friend Frank Sinatra. Hmm. And in 1978, a bunch of different Judy Garland personal items were auctioned off by Sidney Luft um, with Larna at his side and Joe also helping out. Almost 500 different items got sold and they ranged from copper cookware to musical arrangements, all different kinds of things. The auction ended up raising 250 grand. Wow. And 
you know, all of that money was for her heirs. So that was that was good. Copper cookware, though. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> I, I got a I'm, Judy Garland pot up here. To be confused was, with the copper face paint that was, they used in the... <laughs> yeah, they got us now silver. Did you melt Aluminum. down the tin man that's to make right. the... The copper man? Right, the copper man. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to today's episode of Betsy Boss Podcast. If you'd like to find us online, we're on Facebook at Betsy Boss Podcast, on Instagram at Betsy Boss Podcast, on Twitter at Betsy Boss Pod, and our email is Betsy Boss Podcast at gmail.com. Also, Betsy Boss is now on both iTunes and Spotify. If you like what you hear, please rate, subscribe, and comment. Thanks again for listening. 